I read you the Berean by John Reitenbaugh, which was only two paragraphs, shortest article he's ever written in his life, I'm sure. And uh, he made several statements there, which I went through and showed you the scriptures that verified that what he was saying was correct. And normally speaking, if he were just to address a subject, he would go to those supporting scriptures and explain why he made the statements he made. But in that particular little blurb in the Berean, he didn't go to those scriptures. He didn't explain where he was getting the information he was disseminating. He just laid it out there. So I went through and showed you those scriptures which he had to have heard, understood, or known in some way in order to make the conclusions that he did make. But he didn't give it to anybody. He just made the statements in two paragraphs and dropped it. And I thought it was very, very interesting, and you may recall some of that. Now, today, <laughs> someone texted me that they had, I think, just listened probably today to uh, a Beyond Today. That's the United Church of God uh, broadcast. And Darius McNeely was the presenter. And very interesting what he came up with. He was trying to give people some hope based on what's happening in this nation today with the coronavirus and, and all the financial things that are leading to a collapse as a result of it. Well, partly as a result of it. It may be the trigger. The financial problems have been there all along. But this may indeed help trigger it so that the collapse of Zephaniah 1 occurs very shortly now. But he apparently entitled this particular broadcast a future after coronavirus. Now he goes to the book of Jeremiah to give this hope. Very interesting where he went in Jeremiah. He went to Jeremiah 31, where it says that Jeremiah buys a field in Anatoth as a sign of hope in the future. Even though he was a prisoner and the land was being destroyed and the people about to be taken into slavery. Now the setting of Jeremiah 31 there is that Nebuchadnezzar is at that point besieging Jerusalem. And then while Jeremiah is in jail, he is told by God to purchase a field of his uncle in Anatoth. Now, we live in a village called Anatoth, and that's at the area of Zion, and the Red Rock area may even be included by God as part of Zion, or certainly as part of the promised land of the origins. Now, how did this get named Anatoth? I had read about purchasing a field and had been directed 
to prepare a place by God in a dream and was looking for a name for it. And I had researched and studied already, I guess, uh, this section in Jeremiah about Anatoth and had looked up the word and it meant answer or hope for an answer might be included in that. And Darius said it was a sign of hope for the future. So, this, after much, much search for land, was the answer, and God virtually gave it to us. Uh, the, the conditions were so easy and so such that it, I just couldn't turn it down. So, it appeared to be the answer to the search. So, why not call it Anatoth? And we did. Now, there were other scriptures about Anatoth, which were not nearly so nice, <laughs> which I had read, but was not focusing on. I was focusing on buying a place that was the answer to what we'd been seeking for, and this was it. The other parts about things that would happen to Anatoth and in Anatoth uh, came into focus later on when trouble and rebellion and all kinds of things began to occur, which are written in the Scriptures as well. And indeed, more and more it appears from both this being the answer to a land that God wanted us to have, that it fits the biblical description of Anatoth even more as those uh, negative ones come out about it. Oh, poor Anatoth, and how the rebels of Anatoth will be dealt with. So, that obviously shows that there's a rebellion in Anatoth. Well, we've had that too. So, uh, this place just fits the Scripture. I commented back to the one who had heard Darius's presentation that he doesn't know it's done been done. <laughs> Anatoth has been bought out here near Zion. I doubt he knows that. I doubt, well, he may have heard of us out here, but I doubt if he knows the name and knows why we did it and has the background of it. I suspect he came up with his presentation on TV uh, without considering any knowledge of us. I, I would assume that to be the case. He just saw it as a, as a thing of hope at a time when Israel was going into captivity. Even as today we see our nation before us going into captivity. We are being besieged by a bioweapon. That bioweapon is being used more and more and more as a, an excuse for controlling us, and it's headed toward martial law. It's headed toward creating a rebellion and a civil war. That is what the global or globalists want of this. Very interestingly, they are beginning to downplay the, the virus as if it is not going to be a big deal. Uh, the doctor in charge that uh, talks with Trump has now said that it's uh, 
all around a 1% infection rate, and it only gets passed to two people by one person. And uh, in L.A., they've quit testing. Uh, in many cases, if it's coronavirus, if they haven't been tested, they declare it something else killed them. Because they don't want the true numbers to be known at this point. Uh, they want to downplay it. And then when it really does get much, much worse, which it, I think, will, then they can bring in draconian measures of martial law to deal with it. Uh, Trump already called up a million troops. And uh, the city of Dallas, just this morning, I guess it was, or last night, said that the troops, they're going to have troops in the streets going from house to house checking to see whether people there have been in contact with anybody with the virus. I expect that this will be done uh, probably on a more nationwide level. If you got a million troops, you got to put them somewhere doing something. And they'll probably start going door to door. Now it may appear innocuous and non-invasive to some, uh, but it will get us used to seeing troops on the streets and troops coming to your houses. And it's getting people ready for what they're planning on bringing down upon us. But they want to minimize it to some degree for the time being so that we don't get too excited and then unleash it once this thing really gets going terribly. So we shall see. Let's go back to Jeremiah, though. Uh, I want to go back here to chapter 31 because I think this is a very interesting thing that has come out. Here it is just before Passover. Uh, this may be the year, in fact, that some very important things do begin to happen. I think they already have been with the introduction of this virus and what it's doing to the financial system around the world and the crash that is to come very, very shortly. So this should precipitate that, it appears. And once the collapse comes, the northern army is not very far behind. So it appears that this is indeed the year, and it may be indeed the year that God begins to do things with the church, because they you got to have a gathering, and they've got to gather ahead of the northern army before it hits, and perhaps even ahead of the financial crash of Zephaniah 2 is an indicator there where he says, gather yourselves before the decree hits. And the context there is a decree of financial collapse, as well as military right after that in Zephaniah 2. So uh, the things that God has promised us would happen here in the latter days, uh, we need to consider, and I think today I should take you through a little bit of it. The last verse of Jeremiah 30, uh, last phrase, says, In the latter days you shall consider it. So this isn't just a prophecy uh, of Jeremiah's day in the captivity that was about to occur as a result of the siege of Jerusalem, which we'll see in chapter 32. This is talking about today, the latter days a day to consider or understand it. Now he says, 
Verse 2, thus says of chapter 31, Thus says the Eternal, The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. So this is ahead of the millennium. This is in the latter days that people will find grace, pardon, good favor of God in the wilderness. That's why he tells us in Micah 4 to leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness, and there you shall be delivered it. So this is where the grace comes, is out in the wilderness. And it's got to be the correct wilderness. Some people say, well, I don't live in town, I'm out in the country anyway. Well, out in the country in Kansas or Texas or Pennsylvania is not where God is going to protect. His refuge is Zion. And if you don't go to Zion, you will not be in a place of refuge or protection. That's just all there is to it. Anyway, he says in verse 4, Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tabrets, and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. In other words, instead of confusion, frustration, and difficulty like we're in today, it will turn around. You shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. We'll see the same thing said about Anatoth in the next chapter. For there shall be a day, here in the latter days, that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion unto the Eternal our God. Zechariah 2 says he will dwell with us at Zion. There he will come, and we are to flee from Babylon to Zion. And there we'll plant. And the watchmen, the two witnesses, will say, Arise you, let us go up to Zion, where God is. For thus says the Eternal, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, Publish you, praise you, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. So the remnant is going to gather at Zion. He'll bring them from the north, from the coasts of the earth. They'll come with weeping and supplication. He'll be their rear guard, as we see in Isaiah 52. And they'll walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Change the birth order. We are the nation of Israel, and Zion is in Ephraim. So this is where... We're to come. And he'll take care of the scattered Israel and gather them like a shepherd does his flock. Verse 10, verse 12. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. The one in the Middle East has no heights. It's just a curb and a graveyard going downhill. The heights of Zion. And shall flow together to the goodness of the eternal for all the good things. And will rejoice in the dance and so on. Verse 17, And there is hope in your end, says the Eternal, that your children shall come again uh, to their own border. The original promised land containing Zion. And Ephraim has been bemoaning himself, and so on. Then he says that Ephraim is his dear son in verse 20, 
and wonders how long we'll go backsliding in verse 22. Uh, verse 27, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Uh, in those days, verse 29, they shall no more say, The fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge, the way it's been the last since 1986, basically. And he will give a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, verse 31. And we'll know God. Now let's go to 32. I was laying a little background there because the context is, right here at the end, God is going to call his people together to build his temple, as Agai and Zechariah clearly show, under the leadership of the two witnesses, as John Reitenbaugh uh, said in his little Berean article last week. And that time very well may be upon us at this point. Now, chapter 32 shows that Nebuchadnezzar was besieging Babylon in verse 2, and Jeremiah was shut up in the court of the prison. Verse 3, For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. Now, Zedekiah didn't like to hear that. So he put Jeremiah in prison. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered to the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. That's what Jeremiah was preaching, that the king would be in captivity as well. And that Zedekiah would be taken to Babylon. Now, in verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Eternal came to me. And he goes in and explains that he is to build, to buy a field in Anatoth, for the right of your redemption is yours to buy it, in verse 7. So, Hanamiel came and said, Buy my field that is in Anatoth, and buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Eternal, end of verse 8. Jeremiah says, yep, that confirms that I'm supposed to do this. So he bought the field, uh, 17 shekels of silver, and verse 15, speaking of this purchase and this field that he bought. Verse 15, For thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So even though they were going into captivity, and Jeremiah was preaching that it would be a long captivity, 70 years, God gave them hope by the purchase of this field. But just like Jeremiah could buy this field, people would come back from the captivity and have and buy, purchase and use fields. And Anatoth was a type of that an example showing that it was going to happen, not just in Anatoth, but again in this land, the promised land around the true Jerusalem. Then he got the evidence of the purchase, 
and said, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power, and stretch out your arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands, and recompense the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Interesting statement. Uh, God said that when he gave the Ten Commandments, that he would bless those thousands who kept them. Now, he gave them to probably three and a half million or more people there, and said that he would bless thousands, because that's all on this earth. From then on, who would keep the commandments and pay attention to and obey God? And he says here again in verse 18 that God will show loving kindness to thousands, not millions, not talking about the millennium, just talking about thousands. And if you take 10% of worldwide at its biggest at 15, and it's probably smaller than that, 150,000 at the feast, those who are actually members is probably much smaller, but 10% would probably be in the seven to 10 or 12,000 range. That's thousands. So this is a prophecy of the latter days and how God will bless thousands. And that's all. Then he extols God some more in verse 19. Great in counsel and mighty in work, your eyes are upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruits of his doing. And then he quotes the signs and wonders in Egypt. This is again about the end time. He says it again in verse 21. You brought the people out with signs and with wonders and with a great strong hand and with a stretched out arm and with great terror. Now that tells me that since this is a latter days prophecy and it's about a field named Anatoth where God will begin to gather his people, that he is going to do it in a dramatic fashion with signs and wonders just like as he brought them out of Mithraim or Egypt. If you read in Zechariah 3, which we touched on last week, it says he will use signs and wonders to bring attention to Christ, who is then at Zion, and more specifically, Anatoth, where he is gathering his people. So he's going to do signs and wonders. And this is a prophecy of exactly what is about to happen. Interesting that Darius McNeely of United would come up with this scripture and this analogy at this time. That means that the whole United Church has exposure to this. It went out on TV across the nation. I don't know how big a broadcast area they have. But it went out. Now, if God begins to do signs and wonders at Anatoth, there are going to be some people who say, didn't we just have a program about that? Yeah. Why did it come this week? Is this something that God is using? Just like he did John Reitenbaugh's little blurb about the two witnesses and a gathering occurring very soon, and that... There would be one come to prominence, and those are the scriptures we read to show that signs and wonders by Christ are going to bring prominence 
to Zion, to Jerusalem, because that's where people have to come. And this little field we bought is a type and an example of that, as Jeremiah uses here, as a latter-day example of what God will do. God is going to show His mighty power, and Jeremiah is talking about it here. Verse 27, I am the Eternal, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I'm going to do this thing. Then he talks about how he's going to remove that city, Jerusalem, from before his face and take them into captivity. Just as God is beginning to make signs of doing signs and wonders to begin to now gather his people Spiritual Israel, we are in the midst of, the beginning of, the captivity of physical Israel. It's happening just as these scriptures have laid out, and I've been preaching to you now for 24 years, that it would come first on the church, then on the nation. So, the message from Isaiah 40 forward is, Comfort my people because their warfare is done. It's finished. And now it's going to go on the physical nation. And I do believe that it is finished. That we are very much on the threshold of God turning it around and beginning to bless His people. Just as He is pronouncing cursings upon the nation around us. And we're still a part of it just as Israel was in the midst of it in Ephraim, I mean in Mitzrayim, before they were delivered at Passover time. We're very much in the beginning of this. So everything is fitting the pattern of the past. And God uses the miracles and the wonders He did in Egypt for what would happen here in the end time, the latter days. Verse 37 of chapter 32, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them, in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath. And I will bring them again to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They'll be my people, I'll be their God, and I will give them one heart in one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I'll establish His covenant with them and plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. End of verse 41. For thus says the Eternal, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, we've seen many scriptures to show how He's done this to the church. So will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. And fields shall be bought in this land, whereof you say, It is desolate without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. The land around us is about to become desolate. Our highways will be desolate. I didn't look that one up, but it's in there. And God will draw His people together in a desolate land that is turned over to the Gentiles. Men shall buy fields for money and subscribe evidences and seal them. 
because he's going to use this promised land that we are living in again as a refuge for his people. He'll bring them back to this land (coughs) even as the nation of Ephraim in which we live will have one-third die of famine and pestilence, one-third die by the sword, and one-third be taken into captivity, and a sword will come after them. So we are at the turning point. We're at the crux of this. I think that the day of restitution is very, very near. It could come as early as this Passover in the first month. I don't see how, with where we are in the world, it could be anything else. It appears to be upon us. Now, how ready are we for that? I'm going to go over Joel 2 again. Let's go to Joel 2. We've been here many times, but here in Joel, God is talking about the terrible things that are about to come upon this nation. And Revelation 17 and 18 show that the woman, that is Ephraim particularly, who has been riding the beast and in control as the remaining superpower, will be destroyed by the beast. And her sins will bring the plagues upon her. And the plagues are now started. They're upon us. They're here. Most of the nation is being shut down. And they'll shut it down more. And then as the virus gets worse, they'll shut it down more and more until we're under absolute martial law and have no freedoms left whatsoever. That's what's coming here. And once we are weakened and have a civil war, as Jeremiah 50-51 to shows us, then we will have the northern army come against us, a coalition against America, and this nation will be destroyed. This isn't future prophecy. This is things that are now beginning to happen in the streets all around us. And even St. George, Utah, is, they've started shutting down things there. And it'll get shut down even more so, as some cases probably appear. Now here, in this context, he says in verse 21, Fear not, O land. Well, he, calls, he tells the people up here, Blow the trumpet in Zion, call a fast and a solemn assembly. Uh, this is a time for us to be very, very deeply considering ourselves and our attitudes and our relationships among ourselves, our relationship with God. People have been saying, where is their God? They're out there in the wilderness and God's paying no attention. Verse 17. So this is a time to be thinking about doing some fasting. I think it would be a good idea to fast between now and Passover for all of us. uh, Because this could be a very significant time. And if it is this significant time of Joel 2, then we need to be thinking in this fashion. A little bit more about that later. Verse 21, though, he says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. Now, in the midst of this destruction that Joel is talking about, the caterpillars, the horrible things that are coming, 
and the destruction, he says, God will do great things. Just like we read in Jeremiah, he's going to do signs and wonders. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the trees bear her fruit. He says in Isaiah 41, he's going to plant seven trees, seven churches in the wilderness, and that they'll bear fruit. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion. Now that shows you who are not to fear, the children of Zion. And rejoice in the eternal your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately. He's blessed us to some degree. He's helped us here and there. I've seen people come back from near death since we've been right here on this land. He's given us some help here and there, kept us going. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil, and he'll restore all those years that we've been suffering in the first month. And we'll eat in plenty and be satisfied. Now, the nation is going into starvation and famine and pestilence and plagues and death. But he says the children of Zion living in the wilderness are going to be taken care of. And then he will give us blessings in the first month. Well, this is the first month. I've looked at it for years and thought, well, is this the first month of the right year? And hoped, and was always disappointed, because I kept hoping that this is it. But now as I look around the world with a third of the world shut down, and the financial collapse very, very imminent as we sit here today, then this may very well be the year. Are we ready for that? Are we prepared for that? Now, I'm going to show you something that God instructs us to do in Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah 10. Now, let's get a little bit of the context before we go to 10. God brings a burden in chapter 9 of Zechariah. Uh, and there is trouble coming. All kinds of trouble coming. Uh, the strongholds, the gold will be as mire in the streets. Financial collapse. Verse 4, the eternal will cast her out and he will smite her with power in the sea. And she shall be devoured with fire. So, this is a time when great trouble is coming. But then he says in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. We just read that. Behold, your king comes to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt the foal of an ass. So, isn't he going to come and dwell with us, he says there in Zechariah 2? Yes. He's coming. Malachi 3 says he will come suddenly to his temple. Is it going to be like Acts 2? Is it going to be like when the Spirit fell on the Gentiles? Well, we already have his Spirit, but will it be in some other form? 
some way, he's suddenly going to come. And then it says, who can stand when he appears? And he'll refine us and give us his righteousness. Isaiah 54, last verse, says, well, instead of self-righteousness, now we'll have his righteousness. Our best righteousness is like filthy rags. His righteousness is wonderful. So he says, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the heathen. Verse 11 though, As for you also, by the blood of your covenant, I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. The church has been wandering without good doctrine, without water, without the Spirit. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Anatoth is the answer that gives us hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double blessing to you. And he's going to make Zion and Ephraim, or or, uh, the sons of Zion, strong against the world. Against the Greeks, against Nebuchadnezzar, against the Assyrians, and so on. So he says he'll bless his people even in spite of physical Israel being destroyed. Now, with that background, then consider chapter 10. Is this stuff starting, what chapter 9 talks about? Do we see it on the horizon? Do we see Russia and China and our enemies beginning to gather against us and prepare themselves to come in? Did China indeed, or through Americans' leaders agreeing with it, unleash a virus on us to weaken us, to get us ready for a takeover? Yeah, that's what's happened. And our leadership, at least most of it, is complicit with it and have taken our secrets to the Chinese, pretty well established. So what does he tell us to do? Chapter 10. Ask you of the eternal rain in the time of the latter rain. Latter rains came in February, March, April. So the eternal shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore they went their way as a flock They were troubled. There was no shepherd. And God's anger is kindled against the shepherds of the church, essentially, because they haven't had an answer. All those groups out there don't have a clue what's going on or what's about to happen or where it's going to happen. But he tells you and me, as the prisoners of hope at Zion, to ask God at the time of the latter rain, for his blessings to come. Now, we just read in Joel that he'll give us, in the first month, the former and the latter rain. Here he tells us to pray about it, to ask for it. If you need something to do for the next ten days, pray for the latter rains to come. Pray for the former and latter rains to come in the first month. 
I think that you will be within the will of God. He says, if we will ask according to his will, it will be done. Now, it hasn't been his will in these past years to do it yet. But with the way conditions are happening in the world, and the little blurb we got last week, and even this one by United this week, may indicate that Anatoth and Zion in this area are going to come into prominence, perhaps with the signs and wonders of the eternal, as he said he would do there in Jeremiah, bring the signs and the wonders of Egypt. It's going to be powerful. It's got to be something strong enough, mighty enough, that it will catch the church's attention. And Christ will be the one doing it. He is the stone of Zechariah 3. He will do the signs and the wonders so that we may know who God is. It isn't going to be men. They may be used as instruments to some degree or another. But it's the power and the might of Almighty God. Moses and Aaron were used to some degree. But all they did was tell Pharaoh what's coming. And then God is the one that unleashed it. So let's not uh, look at men in a wrong way. Let's look at God. And however he chooses to use men is up to him. But he tells us clearly to pray. At this time, pray in the first month, for the time of the latter rain. And Joel tells us that it is in the first month. I'm going to throw one more in here with this in Ezekiel 34. It's one that uh, condemns the ministry for what the ministry has been during this period of time and even before it came upon us of confusion in the church. But his answer to that comes down around in verse 23 and on about the misuse and abuse that the ministry has done to the church. He's going to turn it around. Verse 23, I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. Now, this is speaking before the millennium. David, of course, is going to be king of all Israel in the millennium, and thenceforward. But here he's going to send a shepherd to take care. Now, we know that one is going to be set as a signet, as a banner, as a rebel bell, and he'll build the temple. And I, the Eternal, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Eternal, have spoken it. I'll make a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land. Well, we know the evil beasts are destined to come upon the land. That's one of the things God says will happen to Israel at the end time. But here he's talking about peace with them in the promised land. And they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. So he's talking about those who respond and come to the wilderness. And I will make them in the places round about my hill, hill of Jerusalem, Zion, a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. What's the season of the former and the latter rains? About December through April. The latter rains coming in March and April for the most part. And the field will yield her fruit. The earth shall yield her increase and so on, as we read earlier in Jeremiah about 
Anatoth. So this is something to be concerned about right now. You want something for your prayer life? Here's one. God says, at this time, pray that these things happen. That should be a major part of our prayer between now and Passover. Because it is this time of year that he is speaking of. And if this indeed be the year, and it appears that it very likely is, then your prayers can be very, very meaningful at this time. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, because there's something else we're told to do during this time. We're told to be asking for showers of blessings in the former and the latter rains. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told to do something else as Passover comes upon us. Here in chapter 11, down in uh, uh, verse 20, Paul begins to discuss the Passover. And some people were having too much to eat, not sharing. Others were drinking too much and becoming drunk. And he wanted to set them straight here. This isn't a time for selfishness. It isn't a time for setting your mind on yourself and what you have and not sharing with your brethren, uh, the greatest love that was ever given was Christ giving up His life for you and me. He did that as a peacemaking move. To cause peace between man and God, and that we might be peaceful among ourselves. That's what the Passover is about. Peace, unity, harmony between man and God and man and man. And in their selfishness here and their own goals and purposes, they were not accomplishing that. And that's what upset Paul. And anyway, uh, he explains that the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread Verse 24, he gave thanks and broke it, and he took the cup and did the same with it, that it was a a type of his body and blood, which was sacrificed for us. So here they were being selfish and putting each other down and causing trouble for one another and doing their own thing instead of doing for each other. So he uses this example and explains that Christ did it for everybody else. He was concerned for everyone else. He was there to bring peace, harmony, and unity so there would not be throughout the future, through the entire universe, there would be no more trouble. So what he did was to cause trouble to stop. He is the ultimate peacemaker. And he says we're showing his death when we do that in verse 26. Therefore, he says, or wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the eternal unworthily, or in a wrong attitude, a wrong idea, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
Now, he just chewed them out royally for being selfish and putting themselves ahead of others. So, that is in part, at least, what he's talking about here when he says that if they take it unworthily, if we are not at peace with one another, if we are not helping and serving and giving to one another, then we are in an unworthy attitude. What was Christ's attitude? He did it as a sacrifice for everyone, and he did it so that everyone's sins could be forgiven. There was nothing selfish about it. He is all about forgiveness. Is he not? Isn't that what his blood is for? That all sin might be washed away and forgiven? And here you had people who were not forgiving one another and were offending one another even as they came up to the Passover service. And he says, that's just not the right attitude. You're unworthy to take it if you're in that attitude. You've got to have the attitude of Christ. I was going to get to it later on. Maybe I should now. But uh, Matthew 18:21, Peter asked him, How often should I forgive my brother? Seven times in a day? No. Seventy times seven. 490 times in one day. In other words, complete and total, forever forgiveness. Nobody's going to offend you 490 times in one day. A day's not long enough to do it that many times. So he said our forgiveness then has to be infinite. Totally encompassing. Now, human beings do not, by nature, have that kind of attitude. We're grudging. We have vanity, ego, self, self-righteousness, all kinds of attitudes that get in our way of forgiveness. So we carry something for three days. We carry it for a week. We carry it for ten years. We carry it for forty years. And still hold something against somebody. Years and years later. Husbands and wives do it to each other. Well, 40 years ago you did this. 30 years ago you did that to each other. They don't forgive. They don't forget. They don't move forward. They save whatever you might have done to bring up at a time of argument and hate, on whatever level that hate may exist, as a weapon. Now, something that's been forgiven can't be used as a weapon, can it? How can it be used as a weapon if it's forgiven? Didn't Christ say, I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, and they will never be mentioned to you again? Now, that's real forgiveness. Never be mentioned again. 
Now, how far short of Christ's forgiveness are we? How long does it take us to forgive? And in some cases, do we ever? Now, these people were supposed to forgive each other for whatever it was they were doing here in their overeating and overdrinking and their selfishness and whatever all was going on, and it was all ungodly, and it was not a peaceful existence. Because people were being selfish and jealous and all kinds of attitudes that are of works of the flesh, there was not peace and harmony before the Passover. Now, Satan hates the Passover. He hates that Christ and the Father can forgive sin. He wants us punished for our sins. And he will use us, given half a chance or less, to cause trouble and disharmony and disunity before the Passover. And we're so easy to use. So easy to use. Satan, as he, as Christ said of Peter, he'll sift you like wheat. It's real easy to sift wheat. And we need to be very, very careful of our attitudes before Passover. To have the attitude of Christ, who forgives all sin, who puts it aside, who, when he begins to bless the church again here at the end and showers blessing upon us, is going to forget all about Laodiceanism. He's going to forget all about our attitudes of the past. He is going to move forward in peace and love and happiness and joy and give us his righteousness. So all this that we've been going through, he's going to forgive and move forward from. He's not going to hold any of it against any of us. He's not going to bring it up anymore. Why should he? If we have repented and he stirred us and brought us to Zion to do his work, he's going to just simply outright bless us. Forgetting all that is behind and moving forward. That's his attitude. What's our attitude? Does it fit in with that? Now, what does he say here? Going down another verse. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Examine yourself means you check yourself over, you discern what your attitudes are toward your fellow, your brother and sister, your fellow Christian, and what it is toward God. Is it love? Is it mercy? What did Christ give in his sacrifice? He gave love, mercy, grace, Justification of our sins, forgiveness of our sins. Now he says, if you don't forgive each other, I will not forgive you. Now that puts a heavy burden upon us. 
if we have some attitude toward somebody somewhere and we will not give it up, if we'll not divorce ourselves from it and forgive and show mercy on our fellow brother or sister, then he will not forgive us. It's just that simple. So, he tells us to examine ourselves before Passover to see what our real attitudes are and if we are living up to what Christ set the example of and for. And we need to be in love with God and in love with each other as much as we love our own selves. There's no room for jealousy or envy or hate, or despite, or any of the works of the flesh. Now, if you want to examine yourself ahead of Passover, go to Galatians 5. Go carefully over the works of the flesh and see if any of them are in your character, your mind, your attitudes right now. Go through the fruit of the Spirit there. And see how much you are evidencing each one of those. You examine yourself in the light of the Word of God. In the light of His attitudes. Not yours, not man's. His attitudes. And He contrasts them there. The attitudes of the flesh and the attitudes of God. Where do you fit? How are you doing? Do you have some examination and some repenting to do before Passover? He says, examine yourself. Now, if you examine yourself, does it do any good to make an examination unless you have some treatment? Now, if a doctor examines somebody for a physical problem, does he then say, okay, I've examined you and you you have a problem, But we're not going to bother to treat it. We're just going to send you back out of here having been examined. Now, that's not the way he approaches it, is it? The way he approaches it is, all right, we've examined you. You have a problem. Now, here's what we're going to do about it. It's part of the examination. (coughs) The examination didn't do a bit of good if you don't do something about it. So, if we find some of these attitudes in ourselves then we'd better get rid of them, do something about it. Otherwise, we're unworthy to take the Passover. Got any hate? Got any animosity? Got any unforgiveness anywhere in you? Better get rid of it. Better repent of it. For he that eats and drinks unworthily, in a wrong attitude, eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And he says, because we don't do it right, many are sick and many are dead. We're supposed to examine and get it straightened out. Otherwise, we get chastened by God. Verse 33, Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Wait for each other. Help each other. Love each other. Tarry for each other. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together 
to condemnation. The rest will I set in order when I come. Now, he wrote another letter. Let's go to 2 Corinthians now, chapter 13. He ties this together here. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Uses the same word. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. So, reading that, it's very, very clear there that we ought to examine each other. Right? Is that what that said? Examine each other, whether you be in the faith, or whether they be in the faith? No. No. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. You'd better find out if Christ is in you. You're not to be examining your brother before Passover. That's what they were doing in 1 Corinthians 11, is examining each other. And saying, you're not worthy to sit down here and eat with us. We have plenty and you don't have much. We're better than you are. In whatever way they meant it and however they did it and whatever attitudes they had, it was not right. They weren't caring for one another. They were taking care of themselves and thereby condemning one another. A Christ did not do that. He was sent as a sacrifice for all people. God so loved the whole world that He sent His begotten Son as a sacrifice, ultimately there, available for everyone, and it will be before the plan is finished. So, He stresses it here, what He's just said in 1 Corinthians 11. Examine yourselves, your own self, whether you be in the faith. It isn't our job to examine each other whether or not your brother or your sister is in the faith. That's God's job. And your job is limited to whether you are in the faith or not. Not anybody else. Sorry. Can't justify that in any way. Prove your own self. Know you not your own self. How is Christ's attitude in you? Now, you can examine somebody else and be critical, but what about you? Are Christ's attitudes in you? Let's go to Matthew 5. Here's another good scripture to use before Passover, these next ten days. Matthew 5. Here are the attitudes of Christ. Here are the attitudes he took to the stake with him when he died. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not self-righteous, not egocentric, not thinking they're great, but poor in spirit, realizing how much they lack the Spirit of God. 
Those people are blessed. Not judging others and how poor in spirit they are, for crying out loud, but those who of themselves realize their lack of spirit and lack of what they should be. Humble, meek in other words. They'll receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We tarry for one another. We mourn for each other. We hope for each other. We pray for each other. We do good to those who despise us and persecute us and misuse and abuse us. We don't fight them. We love them. We do good to them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God hates vanity. He hates pride. He hates self-justification. He loves meekness. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Not telling anybody, everybody else how unrighteous they are, but hungering and thirsting after the righteousness they need. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I think it's right here in this same one where he says, If you forgive others, I'll forgive you. But if you don't, I won't forgive you. I just simply won't forgive you. And you will answer for your sins. And what are the wages of sin? Death. If we are not forgiving people and not holding things over people's head, we will not be forgiven and will miss out on the kingdom of God. Isn't that what he says? The merciful. Those who are willing to forgive, move on, leave people alone. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. No guile, no accusation, no evil imagination. Pure in heart, for they shall see God. Philippians 4.8 Those who look for the good, not the bad. They try to find the good. Let's go back there. I'll read it right quick. That's a good one. Philippians 4, verse 8. Here's another one you can examine yourself in the light of. If you want to jot it down. Chapter 4. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren. Finally. Here's, here's the things that he's going to sum up and say. This is what you need to do. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, not evil report or evil imagination, good report. If there be any virtue... If there be any praise, think on these things. These are the things that you're supposed to do. These are the attitudes you're supposed to have. Do these things. And the God of peace be with you all, he says. Back to Matthew 5. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Christ is the greatest peacemaker there is. Are you a peacemaker or a peace destroyer? Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it goes on. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the whole sermon there, the whole teaching, is a wonderful place to examine yourself. I'll stop there with that. Let's go to one more in terms of cleansing and examining. Ezekiel 45. Ezekiel 45. This is getting down to where it's talking about the temple to come and so on. Uh, Verse 18. Thus says the eternal God, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that was four days ago, this year, you shall take a young bullock without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. So from the first day of the first month, we should be cleansing the sanctuary, preparing for the Passover. We've read there where Paul says, examine yourself and don't take it with a wrong attitude. Examine your own self, whether you be in the faith or not, not everybody else. And here he says, in the first month, in the first day of the month, take this bullock, sacrifice it, and begin to cleanse the sanctuary. Are we not the temple of God? Are we not the sanctuary of His Spirit? Does He not live His life in us? Therefore, we have His attitudes and His approach and think His thoughts not our own carnal, selfish, vain, troublemaking thoughts. Verse 20, And so shall you do the seventh day of the month. For every one that errs, and for him that is simple, so shall you reconcile the house. We are to reconcile the house. How is a house reconciled? reconciled? It is brought to peace. It is brought to goodwill and favor. If there's still animosity, then it has not been reconciled. In the first month, in the fourteenth day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall you eat. And the prince will prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. Now Christ is that sin offering. And he is willing and was willing to die and to be a perpetual sacrifice for your sins and minds, even those we've committed since he died, because that death still carries the power of forgiveness of sin. So we're to cleanse the sanctuary. We're to each of us, if we err in any way, be reconciled. So that the house, when we approach the Passover, everyone there has the attitude of Christ. He's examined himself, whether he's in the face. He's looked at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's looked at Philippians 4, 8. He's looked at Galatians 5. 
He's examined himself. And when he examined himself, he always found himself wanting, did he not? We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So when we examine ourselves, we are going to find spiritual disease, spiritual cripple, spiritual problems, because every human being has some. So we have a challenge ahead of us in these next ten days to examine ourselves very carefully And if we find some of these attitudes, these sins, these problems, do everything we can to mitigate them, to forgive any that we have problems with or have trouble forgiving, whether it be something that happened yesterday or ten years ago, you better get over it. Out of your mind, whatever it might be. Christ will not allow weaponizing any of our sins throughout all eternity. He will forgive them and forget them and move on and never mention them again. How Christ-like are we? We had better become more Christ-like between now and Passover so that we can take it in the right attitude, in the right spirit, with love and concern, forgiveness, help, the love of God throughout us. It didn't happen at that Passover before Christ died. There was one individual there who partook of the bread and the wine, And did it unworthily. Because he had an attitude of selfishness and gain. And envy toward the others. And sold out our Savior in so doing. What about us? When he came with the attitude of meekness and love and kindness. And sacrifice for everyone will we come in his attitude, thinking his thoughts, and having gotten rid of the worldliness and the selfishness that so prohibits and impairs our relationship with God and man. Let's be sure we don't let these next ten days go without some serious self-examination because service and the work of God in this end time and being a light to the world of God's way is just ahead of us. So let a man examine himself whether he is in the faith and if he finds from faithlessness repent. Turn to God with our whole heart and love each other as we love ourselves. Those are the first and great commandment, and the second one is just like it. Amen.